Hey, welcome back to Female Found World. I'm Jasmine Garnsworthy. I'm the host of the show and I'm also the person behind all of the Female Found World content you're getting in the newsletter that we send every week on TikTok and Instagram and in our private online community. I actually just want to start by saying thank you, a massive thank you to everyone who came out to the Female Found World and Shopify brand camp in LA last week. There is a moment, I think it's, I don't know, it usually happens like 24 hours before an event starts and you kind of uh, sitting there thinking, oh shit, what if no one turns up? Like, what if this is an empty room except for these amazing panelists and speakers that I've brought all the way out to this venue? But that has never happened. It is always an amazing turnout and you guys always just show up with the best energy. I love watching everyone swapping phone numbers and email addresses and following each other on Instagram and TikTok and just making connections because it is one of the most common pieces of advice that we get on the show. When I ask really successful founders, hey, like what's the one recommendation recommendation or resource that you would say up and coming entrepreneurs and founders should really be engaging with. They say, go and build your network, go and find your community, find the people that you need to really get you from where you are to where you want to be. And it's one of those things where I hear that advice. I'm like, okay, yeah, cool. (laughs) I just don't think everyone knows necessarily how to go and become great mates with all of these amazing entrepreneurs. And so obviously you can come and join our free online community wherever you are in the world, but there's just something really special about getting into a room together and making those in-person connections. And we're also so, so, so careful about making sure that at every event, there are some really seasoned entrepreneurs in the room that you can ask questions of them, hopefully even get to meet them one-on-one, but definitely be able to ask questions and learn from them in person through the panel conversation. We really try to make it an informal and casual setting. So you guys are getting that direct intimate advice. And then obviously we have breakout groups as well so that you can go and sit down with someone who's built a company that's doing millions and millions in revenue every year and ask them, what do I do about this? How did you get this done? I just think that in-person connection is totally invaluable. So thank you for supporting these events. Thank you to Shopify for helping us put them on. And if we haven't held a Female Founder World Brand Camp, which is our big panel event, or a Female Founder World Community Hang, which is our smaller networking event in your city yet, I promise we are rolling these out everywhere that we possibly can in 2023. So make sure you're following us on TikTok. That's where we're announcing all of our event dates and they're actually filling up. Those registration lists are filling up now in just a couple of days. So I do want to make sure that if you're someone who is really motivated, you want to get to one of these events, make sure that you're following us on TikTok so that you can get on that list as soon as possible. We're at Female Founder World. Okay. On to today's episode, I have Jacqueline Fu. She is the founder of Pepper, which is a company that makes bras for women who have small chests. And this is not some small side hustle. If you haven't heard of it, it's probably because you are not in the demographic because Jacqueline has sold over a million bras. She has turned this idea into a really sizable company. And like all of the founders on the show, she doesn't hold back when it comes to sharing her advice, her learnings, her struggles. I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. And if you do, don't forget to drop us a five-star review wherever you listen. It's how people find the show. It's how we get featured on the charts. And it's how we find sponsors and partners who then and allow us to make more content. So thanks for the support and let's get into the episode. You are now entering Female Founder World with your host, Jasmine Grinesworthy. 
Jacqueline, welcome to Female Founder World. Thank you so much for having me. Let's kick off with a bit of an intro for folks who aren't familiar with Peppa. They don't have size A boobs like I do. (laughs) What are you guys building over there? So Pepper is an unapologetic bra brand made just for small chested women. So for us, that means double A to B cups. Okay. Tell me the story about how this idea came to you because it's genius. I'm small chested myself. I'm a 32A. I couldn't find a bra that fit me. Everything gave me cup gaps. That's where I couldn't fill in the cups. I had this really awkward space or I felt like I had to wear a pusher bra to look two sizes bigger. Mm -hmm. And when I was younger, I remember rolling up tube socks and stuffing it into my (laughs) bra to get cleavage, right? Like everything was about cleavage. And that was always that one part of my body where I hated about myself and felt so self-conscious about. And I was trying to think about where that came from. Why didn't I like being small chested. Why was that something to be self-conscious about? And I think there's so many things in society that tell us bigger is better. Small is something to be embarrassed about. You know, words like flat are an insult. insult. I got called things like having a boy body, right? Um, So Mm. that's ultimately what we want to solve for at Pepper is creating this world where women are embracing being small chested, embracing the word flat and turning it something from something negative into something they just celebrate like every other part of their body. So when you started this business, it's back in 2017, you'd worked in marketing for tech companies for a while. Did you go all in on the business? Were you testing some things out as a side hustle? What was the progression into building this? I was working at a enterprise software company with my now co-founder, Leah. I was just sharing with her my pain points and this idea that I wanted to make a bra that actually fit me. And her response was, oh, I thought, you know, most bras fit small chested women, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think if you're not small chested, you look at the market and you're like, oh, it's it's for skinny girls or whatever it is. But I'm like, oh, no, I, I think what most bra companies are designing for is this like Victoria's Secret model, right? Like this very yeah. busty, perfect body. And most of us don't have that. So then I went out and I asked friends and family. I, I sent an email to all my friends and family and there was three questions. It was, what size are you? What brand do you wear? And do you love your bra? And everyone who was small chested came back with, I hate my bra, it doesn't fit, but there's no other option. So what am I gonna do about it? And I was like, wow, that really tells me that everyone is just compromising. No one has a solution that they love and there really is this opportunity. Like why are so many bra companies ignoring this audience segment? So my co-founder and I started reaching out to random people on LinkedIn and trying to learn how do bra companies design right now? And what we learned was most bra companies designed for 36C, which is what they consider the standard in America. And so if you're bigger than 36C or smaller than 36C, that design wasn't really meant for you. And that was kind of one of the first aha moments that we had. Huh, that is so interesting. So let's talk about getting this idea into the market. I know that you were funded through a Kickstarter that was really successful. You oversubscribed. Why did you decide to go that route and maybe not the traditional VC route when you were funding the business in the beginning? My co-founder and I both did not come from the bra industry. My background was in marketing at tech companies. Her background was in consulting. We came at it from a very underdog type of perspective and we didn't know how to get started. We've never done this before. And we weren't willing to quit our full-time jobs just yet. I wasn't sure, was I the only one who felt this way about this pain point where women willing to pay money to solve this problem. And we wanted to figure out some of those answers before making the full leap. So we decided to launch on Kickstarter to de-risk this business. And we 
somehow created this prototype that looked okay from far away. It wasn't perfect. We never designed a bra before, um, but it at least was able to communicate what we're trying to solve for. And so the day that we launched, we were 100% funded in the first 10 hours. And I remember that day so clearly. I, I woke up at you know six in the morning to push that button to make it go live. And we were just seeing all these numbers climb so quickly. And the craziest thing was it wasn't my mom or my aunts or my cousins. It was strangers who were mm-hmm. finding this Kickstarter campaign, writing into us, saying things like, where have you been all my life? I've been waiting for a brand like yours. And that's when I knew we were really onto something. And immediately after, quit my full-time job so that I can focus on Pepper. Oh my God, what an amazing feeling that must have been. Yeah, I remember that night, like opening a bottle of champagne. I was like, I, re- I want to remember this moment forever. Yeah, oh, that gives me goosebumps. Along the way, you have I know that you've stayed mostly bootstrapped. You've raised a, a little bit of a seed round, but mostly bootstrapped, which is incredible. When I think about the issues that female founders have raising money and then you throw in this very specific problem that you're solving, I can imagine that actually the VC landscape would be extremely challenging for a business like Pepper. Yeah, you hit it on the head. And I think what you're alluding to is, you know, we were trying to convince a bunch of old dudes why small boobs is a big market. Yeah, <laughs> and that was extremely <laughs> hard, and you know, our there was so many data points that reinforced we were onto something big. We were finding product market fit, and people were really ready for a brand like ours, right? Like we had all the data points in the world, yet we kept hitting into things like, oh, it's, it sounds like such a small market, or I I don't wear bras myself, so for that reason, I'm out. Right. Yep. And we got so many of that pushback. And I'm like, I bet you invest in a lot of other things you know nothing about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was this one instance that I also won't forget. It was a male investor we were pitching to and his cheeks went bright red and he said the word bosom. And I'm like, oh, my God, are you 80 oh. years old? <laughs> and I knew right away, like he wasn't going to get it. This just wasn't the right fit. So we learned really quickly early on who was the perfect investor for us. And that's also why we didn't go down the traditional VC route, because we knew that wasn't the type of partner that was really going to help us, you know, build the brand and the company a way that we felt the most authentic and true to. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that I think it's less than 5% of all VC partners in the US are female. So that does not leave a huge pool of people who can like resonate and understand this problem, I think, at a really authentic level. Yeah, we actually got the most pushback from female um, investors. Uh, Most of our investors are male. It was really hard for us to convince female investors in this idea because If you're not small chested, then also you might not understand the pain points. And so we also got, you know, the most tough questions from female investors. And my hypothesis Mm -hmm. there is that there aren't a lot of, you know, successful female founder stories out there. So they really need everyone to be a unicorn, right? To really hit it out of the park. And so they have this pressure to make these really good awesome bets and maybe they're less, you know, risky about it. I don't know. That's a story I have about it. Yeah. Interesting. But regardless of that, you've gone on to build a business that's doing eight figures in revenue. You've sold over a million bras, which is absolutely incredible. How were you learning 
to manage that cash flow and to understand this kind of side of the business when you're coming to this from a marketing perspective? It was a challenge. There was multiple points in that journey where we thought we were going to run out of cash and that would be it. And we would have to go find new jobs. There was this one moment, me and my co-founder, we were at our warehouse and we were looking at all the inventory on the shelves and we were like, wow, we are really overstocked right now. I think we bought way too much inventory. We didn't know how to inventory manage. That is an art and a science. It's one of the hardest things to do is to manage inventory. I think this was like year two of the business. And we were looking at, you know, the cash in our bank and we're like, I I think we're going to run out of money tomorrow. So we freaked out and then, I don't know, something magical happened. And then we just started selling all the inventory. I think this was right before COVID. We're really overstocked, but it became a blessing because during COVID, we took off. Like we did crazy amounts of growth during that time. And we wouldn't have been able to reach and maximize that growth if we weren't overstocked right before. So I'm a big proponent of you know, believing in the universe and things happening the way they do. And in that moment, it happened exactly the way it should have. Yeah. And because, you know, this is something that we hear a lot from folks who business took off during 2020 for what, for whatever reason, whether it was TikTok or whether there was more of a spotlight on their category during that time. And, but then they had the supply chain issues, so they couldn't actually fulfill on those orders and they missed out on some of those opportunities. So what a kismet moment for you for that to have worked out. (laughs) It didn't feel like it at the time. (laughs) No, I bet. I bet. I bet. And you were talking about inventory management. And this is also something that I think is such a unique pain point to scaling businesses. What are some of the lessons that you've taken away from that? Are there tools that you use? Is it a specific person that you've hired for? Like, how do you manage that? I think the hardest thing about inventory management is that you never get it right because you're trying to guess and anticipate the behaviors of your customers. And especially if you're doing something new and you're a new startup, you don't have much data to go off of, right? I can't really predict you know, what specific colors or styles my customers are going to gravitate towards or even sizes because it's a complete new customer base that we were learning about. The Kickstarter actually gave us some initial data points. So that was great. But as we grew really quickly, it became harder and harder to guess. So I think just really accepting that we're never going to get it right was kind of that first thing that really helped us because it just made us a little less, it it relieved a little bit of the pressure. So we were like, okay, well, we're just going to react to what we learn, right? I I think a lot of what also helped us is shorter lead times. So working with your manufacturing partners to shorten the lead time will help you react to inventory learnings and, and situations faster. So that really helped us as well. Is it to, to kind of be able to negotiate those shorted lead times, did you need to be working to certain volumes? Did you need to have an established relationship? Did that increase your unit economic costs? Like what were some of the other things that you had to consider? That was another thing. When we first found our manufacturing partner, so my co-founder Lee is Colombian and she wanted to find a manufacturing in Colombia so she can also give back to her roots, right? And also Colombia is a huge manufacturer of lingerie products. So we found this perfect factory that, you know, supports women, hires single mothers, pays fair wages, and they were willing to take a chance on us. We really sold them on the dream. And that's another 
thing we learned was how to sell people on the dream and get them really excited and committed to take a chance on you. Because in the beginning, it's all about people taking a chance on you. And we were the smallest, smallest fish when we first started. We couldn't mm -hmm. get the terms that we wanted. Minimums were seemed out of reach. And so it took five years to where we are now to build this incredible partnership with them. But every year we were proving our growth. We were increasing the number of styles we were developing with them. We were constantly renegotiating and retelling the story about the opportunity with us. And we've gotten to a point where we've been able to renegotiate the terms, shorten our lead times, all thanks to the hard work of our team, just always making sure that we're building that relationship. What are some of the things that you've learned as you've been, you know, obviously selling this story now and really selling the vision to, in the beginning, this Kickstarter group and then all of your different partners and customers? And what are some of the lessons that you've taken away from, become, you know, as you become really good at doing that? I see myself as a salesperson now. Yeah. I never thought I would be a salesperson, but when you're a founder, all you do is sell. You're either selling to partners to work with you. You're trying to sell, you know, someone on why they should join your team. You're trying to sell mm -hmm. to investors why they should invest in you, selling to customers why they should buy from you. And so I think one of the skills I've always been flexing in that I got you know, pretty good at is trying to think about what the other person is looking for, really putting myself in their shoes. You know, What are their intentions, motivations, concerns, and then crafting a story around that. So becoming a really good storyteller. Yeah, that's a really smart way of thinking about it. And when you launched, you were D2C. Are you still primarily e-commerce? What's your distribution strategy now? Still fully D2C. And I think wow. that's what allowed us to understand our customer more. So in the beginning, one thing that we did that I think, you know, has helped us is interviews with customers all the time. I showed up at random strangers' houses asking them to try on <laughs> bras. We would randomly hop on people's, uh, you know, hop on calls with people and ask them for 20 minutes of their time to share more about how they felt about their body. So not just how they felt about their boobs and the bra, but just like your body as a whole, right? Like, how do you feel about that? What was your journey to self-love and body confidence? Or are you still working on it? That insight created this really strong foundation for even how we make decisions today about product, about marketing. So I encourage founders to always create those relationships with your early customers because it'll, it'll It'll give you this, like, it'll build your gut. Like, then you can start making yeah. gut decisions. Like, I think my customer is going to respond to this or not respond to this. That's so true. I think that they have a lot of trouble articulating that because they kind of can't explain why they made the decisions that they did. It's just like gut and intuition. But the reason why they were successful is because that gut and intuition was developed through actually tangible insights and learning and feedback in the early days. They weren't just going on a gut instinct based on something they didn't didn't understand at all. And I think that having that D2C business helps you build that for sure. Yeah. When we think about launching in 2017 as a D2C business and then what things look like now, the digital marketing landscape is could, actually could not be more different. It's wildly different. And so many businesses that I talk to who are launching now who maybe would have launched as a DTC company a few years ago, launching with a Nordstrom or a Target or someone like that because they really need that distribution. They can't afford their digital marketing outlay to launch and, and they're really looking at finding other partners. How has your approach to digital marketing changed in the last few years? Are you guys leaning into TikTok? Have you leaned out of paid ads? Like where is that focus shift? 
Most of our growth is still coming from paid ads. Mm -hmm. It's been a huge learning experience to figure out what works, what doesn't. And I'm sure every marketer will hate the iOS 14 update, <laughs> but we've also started unlocking new channels and trying to learn how all of these things play together because a customer might be experiencing a pepper ad on Facebook and then seeing us on TV and then going and signing up to our email. So there's all these different touch points that they're experiencing and we're trying to figure out where do they start? What's grabbing them? How many touch points does it take? Because that also determines how we think about CAC as well. And for us, we've always been really hyper CAC focused, all about efficiency, profitability. I know back in 2017, the landscape was these really sexy DTC companies, right? That raised tens of millions of dollars and were burning through so much cash, but they were what every VC was talking about. Yep. My co-founder and I very early on knew that wasn't the path we wanted to go on because it, it, to us, that wasn't a sustainable business. And we wanted to maintain the ability to be flexible and to stay in charge of how we grow the business and who we hired, when we hired, how we grew, how we built the brand. But in order to do that, we weren't willing to give up you know, majority of the company in order to raise VC money. So the implication of that is we had to be very penny pinching. I mean, we didn't pay ourselves a salary for the first few years of the business. We reinvested mm -hmm. everything back and we watched CAC like a hawk. Um, Anytime we saw a channel dip or CAC go up, we would pull back. We were willing to sacrifice growth if it meant preserving CAC. It wasn't growth at all costs for us. Oh, interesting. And also something that seems to be really common amongst the female founders on the podcast that I speak to, but doesn't seem to be the story that's told in, in mainstream business media. But that actually is the way that I think most women are growing their businesses. They, they're doing this approach of really focused on CAC, really focused on sustainable growth and not growth at all costs, whereas that's not the narrative that we're seeing in the media at all. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you're alluding to the WeWork, Adam Newman. Oh my God. Yes, let's talk about that. <laughs> um, but I always think about that, how there's a lot of founders who are not good stewards of the capital they raised. Mm -hmm. And I think it also reinforces the idea of VCs. I don't want to seem like I'm just shitting on VCs, but I kind of am, I guess. No, no, like no. always just trying to reinforce these patterns and what it tells me is, you know, VCs actually aren't all about innovation and change and disruption, right? They're about pattern matching. And pattern matching means this looks like a safe bet. And typically that safe bet doesn't look like me or you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I want to dig in a little bit more. You were talking about all of these things that you're learning about the customer journey, where they find you, all of that. What are some of those tangible insights that you've taken out? Like, where are folks finding you? How many times do they need to see you before they buy? What are some of those things that you've picked up along the way? Facebook is still by far, Facebook and Instagram still by far one of our more efficient channels, and it helps to drive the most volume. But what we've learned is in order to continue scaling efficiently on Facebook, we need to test other channels to continue growing. So we started focusing on bottom of the funnel performance in the very beginning, right? Very CAC focused, very much about like, how do we get them to the finish line? Now we need to put more people in the funnel. So we need to talk, we need to think about top line growth and also top of the funnel growth. So we started recently doing OTT, so streaming TV ads. It was really scary because it requires yeah. big budgets and you have to create this video and videos are really expensive. So we put it off for a lot of years. Like we're not ready, we're not ready. Finally this year we said, okay, we're gonna try it out. I think we're ready. But we still don't have huge budgets, right? We haven't raised that much money. And so our team put together our first Hulu ad with only $15,000 budget. 
and most Hulu ads cost companies 50K plus. And with that 15K test, we were able to really scale. We made so much money off of that $15,000 ad. And I think it's because we just got really good at storytelling and knowing exactly what it is our customers were looking to hear. Typically our best performing ads features my face in them, just me sharing my authentic story. And that's what seems to really resonate with people. And now OTT and streaming TV is, is a quickly scaling channel for us, which I'm really excited about. That's amazing that you're able to do that with a 15K budget because I think a lot of people don't even think about that as a channel because they think that it's going to cost like a crazy amount of money to even test it out. Were you working with an agency or freelance partners on that or did you do it all in-house? The production of the video, we did it all in-house, which is nuts because I started learning about what other companies in, they would hire a production team and an agency Mm -hmm. and hire talent. And it was me going to this little studio and filming my my story just the camera on me i was just sitting in this chair and then we had a model and she was just modeling and we just spliced it all together ourselves and it was just pretty incredible because it's i think it's the epitome of the pepper culture which is small but mighty mm-hmm. and it's very much in our dna to be scrappy and figure out what the minimum minimum viable product is learning from it and then scaling Incredible. Wow. When we think about growing team, and I want to shift a little bit now into into that kind of side of things. I was looking at your LinkedIn. It says you've got like 46 employees or according to LinkedIn, 46 employees. Those early hires that you made, were you making big strategic hires who could lead teams or were you making hires for operational folks that you could just like hand off the day-to-day tasks to? How did you think about that? We're closer to 30 full-time employees right now. And me and my co-founder were the only full-time employees for the first few years of the business. So we got to do almost everyone's jobs. We were doing everything. I was packing boxes at the warehouse. I was answering customer service. We were launching ads ourselves, We were designing the product ourselves. We were doing everything. I don't know how we did that. And it wasn't until January, 2020, where we made the decision to hire our first full-time employee. It was customer service. And it seemed like the scariest decision in the world because now we're responsible for someone's livelihood and Mm -hmm. their career development and their happiness at work. And we don't take that lightly. Like it it, it is something so important to me. So we hired her and we're like, wow, this is awesome, right? Like all of a sudden we have a little bit more free time. And then we started hiring slowly and slowly more full-time employees. But approach that we've always had, and I highly recommend, is maximizing contractors. Because a lot of times yeah. contractors are really experienced. They have some extra time on their hands. So then you can afford this really experienced talent about a fraction of the price. But what comes with that is being really clear about what you need them to do and being able to manage their workflows. Uh, but our team was mostly contractors for the first few years of the business. A lot of part-time employees. Starting in 2020, we started growing. And then now we're at almost 30. Incredible. And you're based in Denver. Is the team remote? Or are they all based in Colorado as well? They're all remote. We're geographically distributed since day one. So even before it was the cool thing. And we actually got a lot of rejections from investors in the beginning because they said, there's no way you can build a hot D2C commerce startup (laughs) when the founders aren't in the same place. And I'm like, but the internet exists. And I'm I'm a big proponent of remote work 
workplaces and teams because it allows us to hire the best talent, right? And also I think remote teams empower women the most because we have a lot of mothers on the team who have childcare duties and allows them to, to fulfill that and be at work. And also it, it allows us to hire the best talent from anywhere, not just one single city. Interesting. I read a, a study recently that said that women under 30 are actually the, the ones that are most hesitant to go back to the office. And I thought that that was so interesting. And I actually think that, that like open plan offices have a lot to do with that. People like being in their private space when they're doing creative work or doing deep work. And I just think that it's so interesting. Why is it this demographic very specifically of women who don't want to be working from an office space? I think there's a lot of BS that goes into yeah. having a physical office space too. It's, you have to worry about how you look. You have to worry about how uh -huh. you physically show up. And I think for women, it's a, for, I may mean, hate it, but it's like a lot of what we think about, right? Because we were taught yep. that. And so versus in a remote setting, I mean, I'm wearing a sweatshirt and sweatpants right now. I'm very mm -hmm. comfortable and I can just show up as I am. And I love being able to show up authentically to my team. Yeah, that's so true. I want to talk about TikTok. I know that you're fronting a lot of your content and your ads as the founder or co-founder. Are you also the face of TikTok content or is that something that you have content creators doing? How do you think about that? A lot of our best performing TikTok ads are me, is me talking about yeah. it again, showing off the bra and the story. I actually remember my mom texting me and saying like, you don't need to show off and model the bra anymore. You know, stay classy. That's literally the text I got from my mom was Thanks, stay mom. classy. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? This is what sells, right? So I'm going to keep doing it. And also I love like- You should turn that into an ad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's actually a really good idea. That's um, a great TikTok. <laughs> but I also love seeing how people respond to it, respond to the story. And they're like, oh, cool. It's, it's so cool seeing the face of who, who made this and what it was inspired by. So yeah, con still doing those type of TikTok ads. But now we're also going into finding specific content creators to, to do ads around. We're actually looking for someone to come on board to help us make TikTok content. So if anyone's interested, let me know. Amazing. Where can they find you to reach out about that? You can email me as well, Jacqueline at wearpepper.com and send me your resume. Amazing. Okay, great. Did you ever have any hesitation about being the person that's fronting that content? Or is it just one of those things like, this is the story I hear so much. It's like, it works. We're being scrappy. I'm going to do what it takes. A hundred percent. It's that. <laughs> it's, <Yeah. laughs> we couldn't afford models in the beginning. We couldn't hire content creators in the beginning. So it was just very natural. Like, yeah, I guess I'll do it. No one else is going to do it. But also I, I really enjoy it too, because it is a story that is so authentic to me. And I really do love telling it that I don't mind telling it as well. Yeah. We had an event last night with Shopify. We've got another one coming up tonight. It'll have passed for the folks who are listening by the time this comes out. But I was speaking with a founder who had just been meeting with the TikTok team and they said that what's working right now is in like September 2022, the type of content that's growing accounts is kind of torso and face being shown really natural lighting and a calm voice and something educational. And so I can totally see, like I'm looking at you, you've got a very calm energy. I can totally see how that's working with the current TikTok landscape. That, that is actually a lot of our videos. We, we have seen yeah. like this part really up close. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's totally it. I'm like looking at like what, what I'm looking at now and what I'm hearing. I'm like, that's exactly what TikTok said is working. And it's actually quite refreshing because I am someone who doesn't show up very well on TikTok because I feel like you have to be really like salesy and loud and that's not who I am. And so I think that I've kind of like been hesitant about showing up, but hearing that kind of re- reframing of what's actually working is very refreshing to me. Yeah. Can't wait to start seeing your TikTok ads. And Jacqueline, the last question that I ask everyone who comes on the show is for a resource. That can be a book, a podcast, maybe a habit that you have that you're doing every day that is helping you as you're up-leveling as a leader and an entrepreneur. I highly recommend surrounding yourself with mentors, people who are really invested in your success, not, not just the business's success, but your personal success, how you're doing mm-hmm. as a founder, as a person, checking in and being really invested in, in your own growth as well. And I think we've, we have surrounded ourselves with really awesome mentors that we you know, frequently check in with, get advice from, are asking the questions, learning. And also, I think not just that advice is really helpful, but, but knowing someone is rooting for you, someone who you admire is rooting for you yes. makes a huge difference. Yeah, totally. How do you find those people and connect with them though? LinkedIn is a big one. I am very comfortable with cold outreaching people on LinkedIn and then also tapping into our network, asking people, hey, we're having these challenges and being super specific, like this is our pain point. Who in your network you know, do you think could help us on it? And we've gotten so many introductions that way. I think being specific is key. I think that, you know, the the general, hey, can I pick your brain email actually just feels like quite overwhelming and exhausting to receive when you're on the yeah, other I end. I never respond But if to someone's those. very specific, neither do I. I'm like, pick, pick a problem, <laughs> pick something and I'll respond to it because I don't really know what the point of a call would be at this point. Um, okay, that's great. And also for folks who aren't part of our private community, we do have a private online community as well where we tee up a lot of these mentors conversations we have workshops like that's a great space to connect with not only peer mentors so folks who are in like the same stage of entrepreneurship as you but also people who are a couple of steps ahead as well that's awesome yeah Jacqueline thank you so much for coming on the show it's been great to chat with you and learn all about how you're building pepper thank you so much for having me 